Welcome to the Free The Wage Slave podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping frustrated nine to fivers get out of the rat race and succeed working for themselves. I'm Sky Kilji, a former corporate insurance wage slave who now travels the world year round working from my laptop. This is episode five, where I talk to Maribel Monsalve, who you can find on Instagram as Travel Journey of a Cancer Fighter. Maribel shares her story of discovering that she had cancer, going through treatment, figuring out what she wanted to focus on in her life, and cancer lighting a fire under her ass, to use her words. We talk about her life post-cancer, being in Vietnam during the outbreak of coronavirus, what life looks like now she's back in the US, the economy, how America's responding to the coronavirus crisis, and even how Colombia has become a technology hub and an inspiration for the rest of Latin America when it comes to working remote, being an entrepreneur, starting a business. There's a lot covered in this episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's great to finally be on the line with you. I've been wanting to talk to you for so long, honestly. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I honestly, I think I saw the picture of you when you first came through remission and something just connected with me then that, you know, I need to talk to Maribel. There's a story here that needs to be told. And even more so now with the world in, you know, the kind of situation that's tough for people, I think this kind of message is even more important. Well, thank you. I hope that what I have to say can reach, you know, somebody that might need a message like this. Definitely. And I'd love to just really start at the top with you. So we tend to go through the timeline of life before the pivotal moment and life, you know, afterwards and what that looks like. So take us all the way back to what was life like before things got crazy? Well, so I was diagnosed in October 2018 with breast cancer. I didn't have any symptoms, so I kind of feel like I was pretty oblivious. I mean, I've always been the type of person to want to get the most out of life, enjoy every day as much as possible. But when you are not conscious of the fragility of your own life, and if you haven't faced your own mortality in the face, you kind of settle in into these lulls or, you know, long periods of time where you don't really think about the motions that you're going through every day. You just kind of go through them. And so for a while, I was in that mindset where I wasn't really paying attention too much. I mean, like I said, I've always had this hunger for life, but it definitely increased after diagnosis. Before then, I mean, for a while, I was a lot of a homebody. Actually, <laughs> years before that, I was uh, what I guess a lot of people would consider a party person. I used to love to go out all the time. And then I kind of settled into a relationship where we spent a lot of time at home. So you kind of also grow out of certain stages. And so before October 2018, I was at the point of my life where I was just, like I mentioned before, just uh, kind of going through the motions of life. You mentioned the emotions. And it's quite an interesting point. I have this mindset and belief that our emotions play such an important role in our health physically. Correct. Did you mention that because you think that there's some link to that and the condition that you ultimately found yourself with? Absolutely. My emotions definitely played a part. 
I mean, I feel like they did, you know, years ago. I went through a bout of depression and somehow between therapy, not medication. I'm not very big on having to take medication, even though I had to go through chemo. I kind of set my mind up or, or tried to get my mindset in a place where I could handle my emotions without having to deal with medication. However, I do feel that because of life circumstances, I kind of held on to grudges for a really long time. And I definitely don't think that that was the best for having avoided, for example, or trying to avoid a cancer diagnosis. Now, do I think that it was the sole factor? No, absolutely not. But I do think that it contributed, in a sense, to my body creating something, you know, like a tumor. Yeah, I guess it weakens the immune system. Correct. Cortisol and, you know, is high and you're in a stressed state. That makes a lot of sense. So we've got a good picture of your health at that point. Correct. But what did your business, your career, your family life look like at that point? So I've been working from home for a large corporation. I've been with this company for six years. Prior to that, I was working for a smaller company. I used to manage their IT department, co-manage their IT department. And then I switched gears and went to manage one of their locations out in the field. And I ended up getting sick during that job because of certain chemicals that were on site. So I had to quit that job and somehow I ended up finding my current job. And it's very funny because for years I always wanted and kind of visualized myself working from home or having a job or, or creating a job for myself where I could just spend time at home and not have to worry about going to an office. Actually, my boss, I met her seven years before I was able to obtain this current position. And for seven years, I would write to her every twice a year, sorry, reminding her about my capabilities and asking her if she had an opening because I knew she worked from home. <laughs> and it took seven years, but finally one day, you know, I was jobless. I had to come back from, uh, I was at the time I had been working for the previous company in New York City. I got sick. I ended up having to move back to Florida. And lo and behold, a few months after being here unemployed and emailing everybody for a job, she finally asked me in for an interview. That's really the power of persistence. Yes. I love that you just kept hammering away at that, yes. that you didn't let that dream die. And I commend you for that. <laughs> My question is, were you starting to look for that remote job before your diagnosis or was it during or after? Where are we on that timeline? Okay, so I started to look for a job that where I could work from home right after I graduated college. I graduated back in 2006 but in 2006, you know, companies were still not as open for their employees to work from home as they are now. I actually did run into a company straight out of college that allowed me to work a few hours from home here and there a few days, but it wasn't consistent. And every time I worked from home, you know, I had this, I just knew that that's what I wanted for my life. 
So every job after that, I kind of tried to convince my bosses to allow for full-time work-from-home capabilities. Some jobs, it was easier to do that. Other jobs were not as easy because you had to be present for a lot of the activities that needed to be performed. So this, my current job, I've had for six years, and then I was only diagnosed two years ago. So it kind of was a blessing. It Kind of, no, it was definitely a blessing for me to have this job where I wasn't stuck in an office because I actually would take my job to my chemotherapies and work at chemotherapy and then come home and spend three or four days, you know, offline. Yeah. So that flexibility must have just been so important during that time. It definitely was. Now, of course, you know, in the U.S., unfortunately, we don't have the amount of sick leave or other medical benefits that other countries may have, especially for cancer patients. But being able to work from home definitely gave me a lot more flexibility than some of my other, you know, for lack of a better word, co patients, <laughs> you know, uh, women or men my age that are going through cancer treatment, if you don't have a job that gives you flexibility in the United States, it is very hard to be dealing with cancer and the treatments and work. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What goes through your mind when you first hear those words, you get that diagnosis? What does that period look like? I think any cancer patient or anybody that, you know, hears those words, you have cancer, the first week you are completely deaf. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. don't really assimilate what is going on. You are in a void. Before I was diagnosed, my boss had asked me to go on a business trip to London And the week I was diagnosed was exactly one week before I was supposed to be in London. I honestly asked my doctors to please clear me to go because if I would have missed that business trip, I don't think my mindset would have been the right one going into cancer. I think I needed some normality in my life. Uh, You know, I guess I needed a few days to hold on to this fake sense of normality, I guess. Right. Did you make that trip? Yes, I did. I had a great time, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, London's my home city, so I'm always going to expect to hear good things about it. (laughs) I absolutely loved London. And my best friend came with me. She was there to support me. My parents did not want me to travel by myself, especially right after cancer diagnosis. So she was able to come along with me and spend, we spent a week in London And it was amazing. (laughs) What did that trip do for you personally? Okay, so I've always been addicted to traveling and meeting new places and meeting new people and being able to eat, you know, different foods. I think that that trip gave me such fire in my arse, I guess, (laughs) for for lack of a better expression. like English translation. (laughs) It fired me up. It gave me the desire to live even more than before. It gave me something to look forward to. 
And actually, right after chemotherapy, and I, I don't recommend this for everybody. I would definitely discuss this with your doctor. But my doctors cleared me two weeks after chemo, after my last chemotherapy. And I was able to take another trip to Spain and Portugal and Morocco. So that trip to London fired me up even more to want to travel even further it made me want to stay alive to make sure I did everything possible to ensure that I was going to be able to enjoy much more time on this planet. Yeah, I'm a big believer in the breakthrough coming after the breakdown. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's so funny, as you're talking, my situation is similar, nothing like cancer. Mm -hmm. I had an appendix burst in the middle of the night, oh, sepsis, wow. and was in hospital for a week. And it happened to be a few days before I was due to fly to Dubai wow. for a trip that ultimately changed my life and I ended up living there for 15 months. Wow. So I can definitely resonate with that. <laughs> the timing sometimes is so wrong, but you find that strength inside you to yeah. just make that trip and, and things really change from there. So you said it lit the fire under your ass or your ass to yes. translate for our English listeners. <laughs> what direction did you then take? What did it really make you want to do? And what were those life changes that took place? So some of the life changes, well, definitely travel has become much more of a priority now than it was before. I'm not satisfied with taking a, you know, 10 day or less trip any longer. I actually eventually dream of making like traveling full time a reality. Some of the other changes, definitely my attitude is completely different as to how I see things that others might consider challenges or things that before I would maybe make a big deal about now are extremely, you know, trivial to me. <laughs> I don't make a big deal about small things anymore. I definitely do not have time to waste. I try to take advantage of my time as much as possible. I stay positive a lot more than I used to. And like I mentioned before, I went through depression a few years ago. In a sense, I've kind of been working on myself for so many years that when this moment came, I wasn't really ready for it, but it didn't overwhelm me as bad as I thought it would. Yeah. The universe moves in mysterious ways. And they always say, you know, life never gives you something Correct. that you can't handle. And, you know, uh, Dr. Martini, somebody I respect, something he said always stuck with me, which was, you know, life makes you grow through both support and challenge. And sometimes it's the challenge yes. that makes us grow the most. And I, I definitely hear that in your story. So one thing you said that I think I just want to touch upon, it's not what happened to you, but it's how you responded. And you mentioned that in the past you suffered from depression. And I, I got that sense as you were talking, I could hear that you've done a lot of work on yourself. What were some of those processes and protocols and practices that you went through that made a big difference for your own health and your own sense of well-being? So some of the processes will definitely um, looking you know, for a therapist that I felt comfortable with, that definitely helped. Finding somebody that I felt I could talk to about, you know, all the different subjects that caused my depression in the first place. But beyond sitting in an office with a therapist, I think just keeping things in perspective. 
What I mean by that is sometimes we, I don't want to ever sound like I'm downplaying anybody's issues. I know there's, you know, a myriad of issues out there, people suffering, you know, from bipolar issues, bipolar depression, things like that. Those are, you know, some people have chemical imbalances and it's hard for them to only decide to change their mindset, for example. But for those of us that do not have, you know, bipolar depression or other types of mental illness, I think trying to stay positive without being toxic either. There is some sort of toxic positivity where you're just oblivious in your quest to be positive. I think it's it's facing the reality of things, but keeping your mindset positive. Also, I did a lot of journaling during that time, and I still do. I like to write down emotions. Uh, If I'm feeling angry, I write it down. If I'm feeling happy, I write it down. Because sometimes you need that outlet, and sometimes you don't feel comfortable Mm -hmm. telling somebody, even if you have a therapist, even if you might not feel comfortable discussing a certain feeling, you can always explore that much more in writing, I think I tried to form a lot better connections with my friends and my family so that if I was, you know, at a point where I wasn't feeling great, I always had somebody that was great support system for me to be able to reach out to and kind of talk things out as well. Definitely. I think that outlet Mm -hmm. is just so important. We naturally in our culture repress so many emotions and you know, that is just mm-hmm. toxic to the body. So I love that you mentioned journaling, you mentioned just talking to somebody. And I guess it's important for the individual to find the modality that works for them rather than any one thing being, you know, Correct. the definitive best. So talk to me about you started traveling, you went through your treatment, I guess you arrived in remission, and then you started traveling or, or were you just planning the travel and you started as you were finishing your treatment? How did that transpire? Like I mentioned before, anybody that's going through cancer right now that wants to travel, well, definitely right now is not a good time because of COVID. But before, you know, the virus, my recommendation was to check with a doctor before making a decision like that. But basically, once I was done with chemo, I went on on this trip. I had been making travel a priority for... I guess the last four or five years of my life. However, with the time frames that we have in the U.S. with regards to vacation time and all that, in reality, we only have about seven to 10 days that we can take a trip. And I just never felt satisfied with that. That was never, I've never been happy about that short amount of time. So I've always tried to somehow incorporate more travel in my life. So I guess to answer your question... (laughs) It's really always been a dream or somewhat of a priority, but now more so after cancer. Yeah. So where have you been since you you know, got out of the treatment? Where have you been? Where are you going to next? What's that travel plan looking like for you, Maribel? Right after chemo, I went to Spain, Portugal and Morocco. And then I had to wait a few more months because I had multiple surgeries after chemotherapy. I started traveling again this year. I went to my parents' home country, which is Colombia. And then 
two weeks later, I left to Thailand and Vietnam. I was actually supposed to be on the road for three more months, but I ended up coming back home this past Sunday because I did not want to find myself stuck somewhere so far away from my oncology team. Yeah, we actually connected yes. when you were in Vietnam the first time and we were going to record this podcast and, and then you told me <laughs> yes. you were flying home. Actually, yesterday I released an episode with the CEO of insurednomads.com and uh, his wife is a global travel doc. She attends the Emerging Viruses Conference and I was asking him, you know, what nomads should do. And this week has been crazy. I, I've been kind of surveying yes. my audience in different countries to understand the situation on the ground. What was it like in Vietnam in regards to COVID? I was in Vietnam a total of three weeks. The first and second week, it was not business as usual. I mean, people were taking precautions. Vietnamese people wear face masks typically because it's a part of their culture that they do not want to expose themselves to the sun too much, especially the women. But I noticed that around the middle of the second week, to the third week, more and more people were getting upset at tourists not wearing masks. A lot of businesses were closing down. Some of the hotels and hostels where either I stayed at or people that I knew were staying at started closing down. We actually had a little bit of a scare. I was in Da Nang and the hostel I had just left I had made a reservation to return a few days later and they canceled my reservation. So I called them, you know, wanting to know why. And they said that they were supposed to close down because there was two guys that were diagnosed with COVID. And I guess they had been near our hostel or around there or people that had been around them came back to our, I don't know exactly what it was, but they basically had everybody leave and completely disinfected the hostel and then did not accept anybody back for, and they said they were closing down for about two weeks. So, you know, that's when it kind of hit me that, that things were getting a lot more serious than we were understanding the situation to be. And then at that time, I was in Hoi An, which is a smaller, a, a lot smaller town then Da Nang, but it's only 20 minutes away. And then the situation there started getting a little bit more nerve-wracking because, again, a lot of the hotels closing, a lot of the tourists and travelers not being able to find places to stay, a lot of the restaurants closing. So it just kind of slowly began to worry me that I might end up getting stuck somewhere and not being able to move either to another country or come back to the United States. Yeah. In fact, Andrew from Insured Nomads, he was telling me that the Marriott have closed their hotels. Wow. They're not accepting guests. And even the Airbnb in some countries are emailing the hosts and telling them, you know, don't accept uh, your guests. We're in an Airbnb in Romania right now and we're fine here. The next Airbnb also in Romania in Bucharest. They've messaged us to tell us, guys, you know, wow. it's fine. You can come and stay. But Andrew's advice was try and stay in a, a mom and pop bed and breakfast, something that's not owned by a corporation that's concerned with, you know, their liability of, of being sued. 
So we haven't seen too much of that impact in Europe, but I am hearing that that type of thing is happening, which is it's definitely a concern Correct. for nomads. And, you know, we all have to make our decision. I mean, interestingly, the airports haven't closed yet, but the US and Canada have closed their border. It does look like there's a lockdown Correct. that's about to take place. What are your thoughts on on how things are over there in the US right now? I think we're still at a point, especially in South Florida, where a lot of people are not understanding still. I don't think that they are really taking it serious. We've had our city and county mayors having to close down forcefully a lot of the bars and restaurants and just other places of that sort that people are still flocking to in mass because this is spring break for people in the United States. I, I'm not sure if it is in Europe, but a lot of university and high school students have come here. And I really don't think that even with the amount of coverage that the media is giving this situation, they're not taking it seriously. So our mayors are having to make decisions that are a lot more forceful as far as locking things down. Now, as far as entering the United States, I have to say, and I guess I'm going to be fully transparent here, I, I was a little disappointed. I, I came back on Sunday, flew through Qatar, and uh, arrived in Miami International Airport, and I wasn't screened. I wasn't asked at all where I came from. My temperature was not taken, and also my passport was not really reviewed to see where I had arrived from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's very concerning. There's a, a couple on Instagram that I follow, and they're from Italy, and uh, they flew into New York, and on their Instagram story, they said that they were surprised. They expected, you know, mm -hmm. given they'd come from Italy, there to be some checks, and there was nothing for them. So it seems to be consistent, whether yes. you're a citizen or not. They're not really taking it very seriously. And yesterday, Andrew, was. it was really interesting. I asked him, Andrew, in China, they, you know, did a full lockdown. And after 15 days, the incidence rates of the virus mm -hmm. completely dropped. Will that happen if we do the lockdown in the US, in Europe? And his answer was sadly not, because, you know, in China, they yes. do what the government tells them, because the punishments are severe. In the West, we tend not to do that so much. So he was quite pessimistic is probably the wrong word, but he didn't have much hope for the lockdown actually changing things. I think, I, and I haven't listened to the podcast, it's actually on my list of things to do today. <laughs> but <laughs> to what he's saying, I mean, if only a portion of the population locks down and there's still others not taking this seriously, still going about uh, partying at the beach in mass and doing other things that are compromising of others, then, you know, so let's say the lockdown lasts two weeks and this person or a group of people have been not following the recommendations. I mean, Two weeks from now, you know, they could have just been in a group of people where somebody was infected, which still extends the incubation period for another two weeks. So if everybody's not cooperating at the same time, the chances of us, you know, seeing this drop is not likely. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. He actually lives in Rio in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And he told me in Brazil, they're really behind on where they should be. He mentioned that 
the Rio Carnival happened wow. recently and a group of Italians came and they were in contact with 100,000 wow. plus people during the carnival. And again, mm -hmm. there's no screening. So the potential for that just to explode in these major metropolis is just unprecedented. Also, I think that a lot of countries, including the United States, have been late to the game, uh, you know, to call it that way, with regards to testing. I don't think that they really believed that this would spread as fast and to as many people as it has. You know, we had a lot of cases of Ebola, not, not here in the States, but throughout the world a few years ago. However, it's still minimal when you compare it to the amount of people currently diagnosed with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was talking to a friend today. He's a personal trainer in London. And, you know, I hadn't really heard many cases of people that I knew with coronavirus. And he said, oh, one of my clients that I personal train, he called me and said he'd been in contact with somebody who has it. Wow. And my friend tried to get a test and said there's no tests available. Mm -hmm. So he's in a situation where, you know, a client he's physically trained in the gym has told him he's been in contact with the disease or people with the disease. And he himself can't get a test. So he's just self-quarantining and, you know, really doesn't know what his health situation is, which is just terrifying. I think in here in South Florida, just today, they started operating, or, or yesterday, two drive-through testing clinics so that people can go get tested. And But still, before you go, you have to call and make an appointment and they have to pre-screen you to make sure that you even qualify for this test. And some people are saying that even though they suspect that they have COVID, they, can, they still didn't qualify for the testing. I think the key, you know, risk in all of this is there's only a certain number of hospital beds. And if the epidemic gets to such an extent, you know, where people are really in a severe state, it can quickly overwhelm the medical system. And, I, you know, I'm really, really trying to not just show a negative perspective because, you know, there is always a positive side. And I've kind of pushed out a lot of the positive stuff in my mm -hmm. social media and in my content. But right now I feel there's a responsibility to actually just show, you know, what is happening in each person's area because we're not really sure what to believe. You get so much crazy stuff through in WhatsApp. It's hard to know what's true and what's not at this point. Absolutely. So another, I'm not going to say which hospital my sister works for, but she does work for a large hospital here in South Florida and they have been, you know, she actually does MRI scanning and basically they have told the MRI techs that they might have to go help their x-ray departments. So basically people that are in need of being diagnosed of cancer are kind of being pushed to the side as a lesser priority to people that need to be diagnosed of COVID is basically what the situation is starting to turn to. So, mm -hmm, exactly. So people that might be in line waiting to find out if they have cancer or not or waiting to be screened, unless it's something that's extremely aggressive, but basically the priority level for this type of diagnostic is less right now than a potential COVID patient. A terrible and, and difficult decision for, you know, the people in power mm -hmm. to make. How do you choose? It's 
it's like choosing between, you know, which one of your kids do you love the most and, and which one stays. It's, exactly. it's just terrible. I just want to switch gears for a second and um, talk about sure. the economic situation. In the US, we've got the Fed cutting interest rates to near zero, the lowest of all time. Mm-hmm. They've announced, I think, an $850 billion coronavirus stimulus package. In Europe, the EU are printing £700 billion. And just today in Mm -hmm. the UK, they announced that if you lose your job as a result of coronavirus, the government will pay 80% of your wages up to £2,500 per month. This is something Mm -hmm. we've never seen economically. Our our markets are in free fall. What are you seeing in terms of job losses, in terms of the economy? What's the, the, the kind of situation on the ground over there? So if you've been to South Florida or if you've read about South Florida, this area is very dependent on tourism. There's a lot of people here that work for hotels, they work for bars, they work for clubs, they work for, you know, things that employment that does not really come with a lot of benefits, unfortunately. And a lot of small businesses here are really, you know, one bad month is enough to put them out of business and therefore put their employees at risk for losing homes, losing their cars. I think people are very concerned about their financials. I know that the president yesterday or a few days ago said that every person or every American making under $100,000 a year would be receiving, I believe it's a thousand or $1,200 checks. And we appreciate that. However, I think that $1,200 is not really going to help us if we end up being on lockdown for a lot longer than two or three weeks. The rents in South Florida are not as expensive as London. However, it's not a cheap area to live in. Rents here, you know, right now for a one bedroom are fluctuating between $1,000 to $1,400, not in a great area, like, like not at the beach. If you're at the beach, you're definitely paying a lot more than that. But that kind of puts in perspective. So if a person is out of work for four weeks, the check is barely going to help them with just rent. And are the banks and the mortgage companies giving payment breaks? No, not yet. I mean, hopefully they start to, but as of right now, no. I think that the most they could do is maybe postpone your payment but I think that they're dealing with that on a case-to-case basis and not as a whole solution to the problem or at least a temporary solution to the problem. Yeah, I mean, it's probably too early for them to make a blanket Correct. rule. And as you said, it's specific industries that are seasonal or, or you know, travel and tourism based. I think at Correct. some point that has to happen. I mean, the whole economic system relies on the fact that people keep buying So when an event like this happens, that kind of house of cards starts to fall down and it is going to require something that we've never seen before. Correct. I honestly don't know (laughs) where, I mean, it's, I think I can only imagine at the decision-making level, you know, the kinds of questions that are, are, again, we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetimes. Maybe our great-grandparents or our grandparents saw this or something similar to this during the depression. But, you know, there I don't think there's been 
a time like this before. Yeah, a true black swan event, as they call it. Correct. So talk to me about the opposite side of this. You know, it's easy for us to go with the doom and gloom and fear. And we do have to address that, of Mm -hmm. course. And and it's great that you've shared, Mm -hmm. you know, that perspective that you've got. I mean, on the other side, I've seen the canals in Venice are clearer than they've ever been because there's less boat trips. So the sediment, you know, gets a chance to settle. In Wuhan, where the COVID originated, they can see the sky. There's no longer big plumes of smoke. They can hear the birds sing instead of the factories, you know, making all their noises. So there are some some positive sides. Are you optimistic about what happens after this? Where are you at on that scale? Absolutely. I think that once we make it out of this pandemic, I think one of the biggest benefits or advantages of this will be that, number one, that people take consciousness of not being tied to a single entry of income. I think that slowly we've kind of been becoming conscious that we cannot put all of our eggs in one basket. But I think that after this, even more, people are going to be looking to diversify the way that they generate revenue. Absolutely. I think that the other benefit of this is that for a long time, I've heard people say, you know, I don't have time for this or I don't have time for that. I don't have time to spend with my family. I don't have time to cook. I've been meaning to read this book, but I don't really have time for it. I think that, you know, obviously this wasn't the best way to have to get this pause. But for those of us that are not going through the virus, you know, I think being able to stay home and kind of focus on activities to keep us entertained, I think that'll give us a lot more closeness to our family, closeness to maybe not in person to our friends, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are calling up friends that they haven't talked to in a while, you know, kind of staying in touch more with others. Yeah, I think the humanity comes out in a situation like this. Correct. And, you know, I really like what you said that people are now not depending on that single source of income. Mm-hmm. I think broadly speaking, and, and you know, this doesn't apply to everywhere, but we've kind of got accustomed to the fact that our governmental and the power structures probably don't serve us. Our justice system doesn't dispense justice. Our Correct. education system doesn't educate. And you know, in terms of employment, it's really an old model. It goes back to the factory time of the worker. It is. And You know, it's just really completely one-sided. So I love how our entrepreneur community has responded. I'm seeing companies like Zapier who are allowing people to take Zapier for free for the next three months, Mm -hmm. especially if they're a travel business, for example. That community, the nomad community, the entrepreneur community have really pulled together. And on my site, all of the content about working remotely and becoming a nomad, we're seeing a thousand percent plus increases this week in people searching that out. So I do think whilst it is, you know, a really bad situation and undoubtedly terrible things are happening, it's a new dawn that's breaking and people are probably starting to become more empowered and take more responsibility for themselves and their families. Correct. I think another thing that we are going to see coming out of this is a lot more people kind of 
understanding their finances better than before or becoming more conscious of, of keeping track of finances better. And again, we've kind of, I would say the last three or four years, I've noticed a lot more people trying to empower themselves Not only with, you know, just learning skills from a university or a college. I think more people have kind of taken on, kind of taken, I guess, more personal responsibility, again, for their finances, for their education. It's insane that five years ago, for example, we never thought that Google and YouTube would be able to train us to do jobs that are not dependent on a company, you know. So I think... Not just not relying on a single source of income, but I think one of the other things is people kind of maybe working on their on lowering their debts or trying to find different ways to pay off mortgages or how to cut some of their expenses. I have seen a shift of people looking to do this in the last three or four or five years. But I think coming out of this pandemic, I think we're going to see a lot more of people trying to live a debt-free lifestyle and understand more of their finances. I absolutely agree. I think there's been a big shift and it's probably in the last five years, you're right. I remember maybe 15 years ago when I was 20, I first started getting into personal development and that's when I learned all of these concepts and the internet was around then, all of these concepts were there, but it wasn't really available unless you knew to look. Correct. And what I see in the last five years is social media has blown things up to the point where people might get attracted by the guy in the private jet or driving the car with the hot girl, but then they start asking, well, okay, how did the, he create that in his life? Correct. And then they get directed to those same kind of things that you're talking about, freelancing, building a business, running an agency, creating a product. So we really are living in a time where we have access to the entire human knowledge on demand 24-7 in our pocket. It's just unbelievable. It is. <laughs> So I think you're right. I think the world is moving towards that more remote work model. I think this uh, individual economy where the individual becomes an economy himself, he, you know, creates more value for the world. And in return, the world gives more value back to him. And I'm so excited because I think finally people can start using their natural gifts that they have and monetizing that and sharing that with the world rather than going to a job you hate every day to get a paycheck to pay for your apartment. Absolutely. <laughs> For an apartment <laughs> where you don't even spend time at because you're spending all your time sitting in an office. There you go. That's right. You just sleep there for six hours, wake up, hit the gym and go back to work. Exactly. Now, <laughs> now that we're talking about that, one of the things that, and I always tell my friends I that are still, you know, still working at offices, one of the things that used to just feel like it was draining my soul was to sit in a cubicle. I, I don't know if you know what a cubicle is in the UK. I do. Okay. <laughs> I absolutely hated sitting in a cubicle. So especially the grayness of it, everything was gray. So I would, um, somebody gave me this calendar. I'm sure you've seen it. It's called 1001 Places to See Before You Die. Every, basically, every day is a picture of a place that you should see before you die. <laughs> so I used to cut up the image and post it on my cubicle. And funny enough, I was going through early Facebook pictures and <laughs> I saw a picture that I had taken of my cubicle. 
where I had all of these other pictures of places that I dreamt of going to one day. And I started looking at the pictures and I realized that uh, I have pretty much hit every single place that I had up on my cubicle at that time, 10 years ago. So it was just something that hit me about kind of like uh, the power of the mind to make things that you want and long for a reality. Yeah, that visualization is real. Correct. 100% is. I think I really understood how bad the cubicle was in probably 2005. I was working for Aon. I was running their call center. Mm -hmm. It was kind of my first corporate job. And I found myself running a team and it was a call center and the phones were red and I couldn't find one of my staff, a lady called Julie. I won't go into surnames. She Mm -hmm. might be embarrassed. And uh, she'd been off the phone for like three minutes and we're like, where's Julie? And we found her asleep in the toilet cubicle after about 15 minutes. So she chose a toilet cubicle over the cubicle at her desk. And I just think that speaks volumes. (laughs) Yes, uh, cubicle life. Yeah, we've all been there. We've all Mm -hmm. been there. But, you know, I think the good thing is it is such a terrible environment. It forces us to start looking at how to get out on some level. Absolutely. (laughs) It does. Like I said earlier, it it fires up your ass. (laughs) 100%. 100%. So once this thing's all over, what does life look like for Maribel? What's the plan? Where do you go next? So my plan is absolutely looking to go back on the road and finish up the trip that I started that <laughs> that I was unable to finish. I am a little sad, you know, but I'm also extremely grateful. It was a great experience to have been able to go on the road for a month. I had never been able to do that before, particularly because I was able to bring my work with me. And it was a great feeling to be able to travel and still generate income and not have to worry about dipping into my savings in order to be able to do the things I wanted to do on this trip. So the plan is to definitely take another three months, take that time to finish the trip. And I'm also looking at maybe purchasing real estate back home in Colombia. The market there, I'm not sure, you know, how the markets will be after the COVID is contained, but I think that it might be beneficial for people looking to purchase. And I've been meaning to purchase something there for a little bit, just haven't really had the possibility to with going through cancer treatment. Yeah. So you have a nice plan for life once this is all over. It's it's good. I love that you're going in a positive direction. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know... So I turned 40 this year. So I think once you hit 40 and even before you kind of start thinking about retirement, I definitely do not want to be having to work up to the age that the U.S. says we're supposed to work, which is, I believe, 62 for women or 65. I don't want to have to work till that age. I want to If I turn 65 and I'm still working, I want it to be because it is my choice and not a matter of having to do that. So let's dream for a minute. Let's imagine we're five years down the line. The real estate investments have paid off. You can wake up and choose whatever you want to do with your day. What does that day look like? Oh, well, (laughs) what does that day look like? It definitely would involve me probably traveling full time somewhere. Still, (laughs) I'm a very 
I wouldn't say workaholic, but I also am an v- uh, active person. I am not the type to just sit and lounge all the time. I, I, that's not me. <laughs> I have to be productive somehow. It's just the way I am. So I would probably either be managing my own business or, but kind of like at my leisure, not on a set schedule because I have to produce money. No, something maybe in the travel industry that I enjoy, you know, helping clients uh, find their own way to travel the world or something like that, you know, for a few hours, being able to have time to exercise, have a nice walk, maybe in Italy somewhere. (laughs) So I guess, uh, you know, I would still work in my ideal day, but not because I would have to. It would be more of a choice. Enjoying food with my friends. I don't know, kind of just (laughs) easygoing lifestyle, but at the same time, still incorporating travel into my life. It's an interesting question. I ask a lot of people that. (laughs) Because it usually shows a common timeline. So what I hear in a lot of these interviews is there's the life before where you're in the nine to five, you're working Mm -hmm. for the paycheck. And then, as you said, something lights a a fire under your ass and you then move into, okay, I'm going to work remote or not have a boss in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. So I'll still be working for money, but on my terms. And that's phase two. And then phase three looks like, okay, what about once I'm paid? And it's my passion project. Mm -hmm. And everybody says the same thing. I definitely work, but it won't feel like work. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So one other thing I like to ask people a lot, what are those books that changed your life? Are there any books that stand out that you just keep recommending and you keep gifting to people? Absolutely. Definitely The Miracle Mornings. I have been reading this book. I actually did not implement a morning routine until until really until cancer treatment, because during cancer treatment, there's a few things, you know, you have to make sure that you're getting enough fruits and veggies and things like that. So I actually started implementing a morning routine during cancer treatment. So that was one of the books that definitely made a difference. And I always either gifted or talk about it. Another one of the books was The Success Principles, There's a tiny portion in that book about visualization. It just resonated so much with me that I read the success principles maybe maybe five or six years ago. And ever since, I've always made sure to write down things that I wanted to visualize in my life or created vision boards or maybe had like a running vision notebook. And that was one of the things that not only resonated with me, but I have shared with others. I've shared the book with others. And I've seen that make such an impact in my friends' lives and my family members' lives that we actually try to get together every year and do an exercise of visualization, particularly at the beginning of the year. But it all stemmed from what I read in that book. And it was really only maybe two pages about visualization. But it made me want to research further the proper way to visualize and things like that. So I think those two books and again, the Tim Ferriss book, The 4-Hour Workweek, I think any any and every digital nomad or remote worker has at some point run across this book. And it has definitely made an impact on 
how we see our time and how we exchange our time to a company for money, you know? Yeah. It's funny when you were talking earlier and I think your phrase was, I was thinking about how to ask my boss to work remotely. And that book popped into my mind. Yes. The templates in there for asking the, you know, he has that process of telling the boss it's not permanent. It's just a trial. You can call it in at any time. But I also love the thing that he says, which is, you know, don't ask for permission, ask exactly. for forgiveness. You'll always get forgiveness. Exactly. And uh, that just really resonated with me at the time. For the audience listening, so those two books was The Miracle Morning, which is, I think, Hal Erod, Correct. Hal Elrod, mm-hmm. and Success Principles, Jack Canfield. Absolutely. Very, very good books. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you mentioned his two pages on visualization. I always have that feeling that the book could probably be done in five pages and they pad it out <laughs> to make it a product to sell. <laughs> it was a very large book. <laughs> There's a lot of repetition in that book, but I think it does drive home a point about things that we should do for ourselves to be able to ensure that we have success in whatever we set our minds to, whether, you know, whether it's creating an exercise routine or being successful and running a marathon or, you know, I think those principles apply not just to business and not just to a professional life, but more to our other aspects of our lives. Yeah, I'm probably being unfair to the authors. It's probably like, you know, a parent has to tell the child a hundred times until we get it. So maybe it's the same principle at play, who knows? Yes. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to add, when you asked me earlier about how I saw the world or, or something positive that would come out of this situation with the virus, I think one other thing that is going to come out is a shift in work. And, and like you mentioned earlier, we are kind of set into this way of working for companies that is outdated. And I think companies, you know, they've they've been very slow to catch on to the fact that, think, you know, the times have changed. <laughs> and what was important to workers, you know, 100 years ago is not, you know, some of these schedules and rules and micromanaging techniques and all that. That's not really relevant to workers today. And there has to be a shift in how we work for these companies or else they're going to start losing competent workforce en masse. Yeah, I agree. I think that definitely is the case in mm-hmm. the West. My girlfriend's from Mexico and we actually lived in Cancun for mm-hmm. six months. We, we left in December. And uh, it's so strange when I see how the institutions are over there, it is still that old system. They, you know, are a few decades maybe behind and, you know, they still believe that, you know, the government has their best interest at heart, that their employer is the one in total control. And, you know, the internet is definitely opening things up there, but I don't see that it's really penetrated to the extent that it has in in the US and in Europe. Do you see any of that when you go back to Colombia? Uh, Well, actually, not really in Medellin, which is where my parents are from. Medellin is a city that, so I was born in the U.S., but I consider myself Colombian. I lived in Colombia for 10 years in the 90s, which was not a good time to be living in Colombia. But Colombia, Medellin in particular, has tried to shed the image that we've had for so long of 
you know, all that stigma with drugs and kidnappings and all that. And while there is still some of that element in Colombia, I think that the younger generations have kind of come out as innovators. They've tried to assimilate much more of this mentality that we, you know, we have in the United States about being entrepreneurs and and kind of trying to generate various sources of income as well. I think that the younger generation there has adapted very well to this and, and they have kind of pushed a drive for younger people to not be so dependent on companies and to have their own businesses. And I know a lot of people in their 20s in Colombia that, you know, have small shops, they have bakeries, they have online businesses, they're designing stuff, they're creating products for niches that are not very tended to. For example, the Afro-Colombian community for decades has been very much not been paid attention to. There was no for example, hair products or skin products for this niche. And now I see that a lot more young people are starting to focus their businesses for these niches. So I think they've kind of learned a lesson, but at a lot younger age than my counterparts here in the U.S., you know? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Medellin is a nomad hub for yes. some reason. I see a lot of people go there. And it's actually on my list to go to at some point. I have clients there that are in the tech industry. And you make a great point. I do see that that city in particular seems to be at the forefront of that movement. Now, I don't profess to know much about South America. I've mm-hmm. been to, you know, to Colombia, to Panama, to Costa Rica, a few countries, but haven't really traveled that extensively in them. But why is Medellin ahead of the others. Why is it that leading light in the region? So Medellin and the region around Medellin, we're known as Paisas. And I don't really know where the denomination came from, but Paisas, one of the stereotypes of being a Paisa is that you are, we have entrepreneurial spirit. We are known as extremely hard workers. And, you know, this was for decades. Paisas have been known as kind of like the industrial force in Colombia for at least 50, 60, 70 years. And I don't know what it is, honestly, but it is very much a part of our characteristic and of our culture as a paisa to want to succeed and want to start businesses. I I don't know what is, how we are educated, I guess, to have this mentality. But people from Medellin for many years have had to find the unemployment rate in Colombia is very high. So people have always had to find a way to make money. Otherwise, you know, if you if you don't have money, you can't eat. <laughs> that has been a driving force for people to, you know, a lot of people will start small businesses in their homes. They will start a small like sewing a workshop like where, where mm-hmm. not only do they work sewing, but they'll employ one or two people in their homes so that they can produce, I don't know, uh, clothing or other items. People have always uh, started small businesses in their homes trying to find forms of employment and not depend so much on corporations. Because again, for so long, you know, a lot of corporations did not really want to open in Medellin 
So people kind of learned that they had to find ways to make money for themselves and not depend on waiting for employment. Now, there's still a lot of people that are employed under the traditional methods, but I noticed that a lot of the friends that I went to school with, they will work a job and also have side hustles just like we do in the States. Yeah, it's interesting. I've traveled fairly extensively. I've been to India a lot and, as I mentioned, some of South America. And I do see that entrepreneur by no other you know, option that happens where people, just because of their social class or their race or because they're a little bit darker skinned, they can't mm-hmm. even get an interview in some exactly. of those corporations. That prejudice still exists. And they do, you know, find that entrepreneurial spirit in India, especially there's, you know, every kind of uh, entrepreneurial product created Mm -hmm. by people that really have no, you know, materials to work with. And I think it's a really interesting time when that convergence of that spirit plus technology comes together in those populations. I think the world is completely going to be revolutionized. Well, and for example, in Colombia, one of the things that if you're my age, for example, and you're looking for employment, let's say you only went to school for two years, so you have a a trade and not a full bachelor's degree, you are considered old for the workforce there. So it kind of leaves a lot of people without any other options, but having to go into business for themselves. And like you mentioned, some people can't even get an interview because of their skin color. In Colombia, it's still customary to have to add a picture of yourself to your resume. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) that doesn't help for people that are trying to get a job and they're being discriminated against. They can't even make it through the door. So they're kind of pushed to have to find ways to make money for themselves. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in online work and remote work Mm -hmm. because it is the ultimate leveler. It's a meritocracy. You are judged by the quality of your work. Exactly. I've probably hired a hundred people on Upwork. I've I've worked on Upwork myself. And, you know, I love it because you rarely need an interview. You're judged based on your application. So Mm -hmm. somebody says, Hey, here's the job I need you to do. You send them, you know, your ideas for how you can do it. And they'll usually just say, hey, do a five-minute test task. And if you do the job well, you get the job, no interview, you're working remote, you rarely need a call with a client. That whole economy, I think, is just completely waiting to explode. When those populations get the internet speed that they need, they mm-hmm. get access to the technology they need, I really do see a explosion of innovation and a leveling of equality and wealth around the world. Correct. And then back to your point about why Medellin has been on the forefront, I think because we've had definitely mayors that have been on the progressive side. They've made decisions and I'm t- I'm, this is going back 20, 25 years. We've had mayors that have made decisions that were beneficial to the city, but also People were just tired of the situation that they were living in and they were looking for a way to make Medellin a city that was a lot better, you know, than the situation that they were living. I mean, Medellin was a war zone in the 90s without having a war zone declared. So I think that people were just absolutely tired of that. And it kind of pushed this movement for, you know, the local governments to decide to implement, I don't know if you've heard, but we had, like, we were one of the first cities in Latin America to have 
a metro that was a sustainable metro. It, it just opened up so much of the progress in Medellin. We have cable cars. So a lot of the communities that weren't being serviced by public transportation the way that they should be, now people are able to move themselves within the city for a lot less money, helping the environment. And it makes it easier for somebody to find a job that they can easily get to because that used to be a huge problem in Medellin. But also the government making the other decisions such as implementing like high speed, you know, in fiber optics in the city. And when you do get to Medellin, you will see why, you know, there's so much innovation right now. But I think that, like you said earlier, the have breakthroughs after the challenges and that's when they learn the most. And I think that for so long, They just went through so much violence and so many other things that it was just enough. And people just shifted their mindset to want to build a city that is different, <laughs> that is progressing, that is known for a lot more than just drugs. Good things come out of bad times. And yes. I think that's something that gives us hope in you know this place that we're in, in March 2020, where we're at in the world. Absolutely. And... You know, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on is because your story is so inspiring. You've, you know, clearly been through a lot and you've come out of it a positive person that's, you know, following your dreams and, and pursuing all of your passions. And, you know, that's something that I want to showcase at a time like this. So what would you say to that person that's listening, that's in that cubicle or they're having health struggles or they're scared of the world around them at this point? I would say the first thing is to take a deep breath. <laughs> We've all been in frustrating situations. We've definitely all had our challenges. But I would say with a clear head and a clear mind to stay positive and stay persistent and just kind of set an outline for yourself for what you want to achieve. And I think once you start having a goal in mind, the universe and yourself and your, your own mind, you start recognizing the steps that you have to take, but you have to just be calm and stay positive that you will be able to reach your goals. I think sometimes we get frustrated about not having what we want right now or not reaching what we want right now. But I've learned that if you just take a deep breath and kind of think things through and create a plan for yourself, the majority of the time things go according to plan. Now, not everything's ever going to go according to plan. There, we always have these things that happen that are out of our control. But panicking and being scared and kind of losing our heads doesn't really solve anything. So the only thing we can do is kind of stay calm and try to have a plan, but try to adapt when the plan changes as well. Yeah, the best plan in the world goes up in flames when it meets reality. Exactly. I think it was a military general that said mm -hmm. that. And there's a lot of truth in that. And there's a lot of wisdom in the words Maribel just shared. So I love that. Absolutely. Maribel, I want to say thank you. You've inspired me from the moment that you know I came across your profile and hearing your story. And I know you're going to inspire our listeners. So I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing so openly with us. I appreciate it so much. I cannot tell you how happy I am that you invited me to this interview. I hope that I was able to get my message across. 
I know sometimes because I think in Spanish, but I speak in English. <laughs> <laughs> My girlfriend does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit hard for me to convey the message. However, I hope that I was able to and that I hope that this message reaches somebody that might be going through a really hard time. I just want to say it does get better. You know, things might be tough right now, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I just hope that my message might help somebody that is, you know, not at the best moment of their lives. But things do get better. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it doesn't take that long. But just to stay positive, to stay persistent in their goals and to just keep on moving forward. That's all we can do. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And if somebody wants to connect with you, how do they go about doing that? They can reach me either on Instagram through my profile, which is Travel Journey of a Cancer Fighter. I'm debating changing the name, but for now it's staying as is. And if they have questions, if somebody's going through cancer and they need somebody to talk to or any other chronic illness and they feel like they don't know who to talk to, they can always private message me. But if not, and if somebody just wants to follow my journey, they can follow me on Instagram. I don't have a Facebook page, you know, that's public right now. I just have my private one. But I think Instagram would be the best way to find me. That's just brilliant and very generous. And people out there, if you do feel like you need that, uh, that support, reach out to Maribel. Maribel, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sky. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, I want to talk to you about voicelink.fm. This is a place where you can send me any questions you have, and I'll include the answers to your question on a future episode of the podcast. We're going to be doing a lot more listener Q&A. I'll answer questions on business, finances, entrepreneurship, marketing, travel, personal development, success, productivity. Do I believe in aliens? Is the Illuminati real? Whatever it is that you want to know. I'm going to answer those questions. Go to voicelink.fm forward slash free the wage slave. That's voicelink.fm forward slash free the wage slave.